0: progressing right along in our survey of 1st and 2nd Samuel 1st Chronicles and we are getting through 2nd Samuel. Now we're not looking at any material at this point from 1st Chronicles because this period of David's life is not recorded in Chronicles and you can kind of wonder why because this is really a tragic period in David's life especially when you consider the rebellion of Absalom. So we're up to chapter 19 and chapter 20 today. And if you remember, his son Absalom has basically created a rebellion, a conspiracy, and all of Israel is now pledging allegiance to Absalom. He then goes after David. There's a battle the army of Israel under Absalom's charge loses. Absalom loses his life. David, at the end of our study last week, hears of Absalom's death, and he goes up to his room above the city gate, and mourns for Absalom. So now we come to chapter nineteen and twenty. We're going to talk about David returning to Jerusalem, and I'm I'm just going to I'm just going to if I had a if I was going to title this section, I would just have one word, awkward. This is really an awkward time for David. And as we go along through this, as we go along through the narrative here, we're going to see how awkward it is. And it really starts out awkward. Because remember, now David and his men, the mighty men, have won a victory against a vastly great army, all of the army of Israel. David's men have won a victory. Over 20,000 of them have lost their lives. And David is the one who prevails. Absalom is dead. Well, then we come to chapter 19. And again, we're not going to read this passage together, but I just kind of want to give you the flow of what's happening here. So the first part in verses 1 to 8, we see Joab, who is the commander of David's forces, confronting David. So the text starts out by saying that Joab was informed that the king was weeping and mourning for Absalom. So I guess as Joab is returning to to the stronghold where David is at, he hears that David is mourning. Now this creates a problem. What do you mean? Well, this led the victory of the battle to be turned into mourning as the people heard the news. Normally when there's a victory, there's a celebration. There's excitement, there is, yes, we did it, we survived. Aren't we great? Wow, our men are wonderful. But there's none of that right now because the king is mourning, therefore the people are mourning or they feel like they have to mourn. That's not the only thing. David's army quietly returned to the stronghold like those who were ashamed. Basically, the text says they returned to the stronghold like somebody who had lost in battle. Rather than showing up, man, we did it, we won, wow, we're awesome, they have to quietly kind of sneak back into town because the king is mourning and upset. And to be honest with you, That's really not a good situation. And so Joab decides to hit this head on. I've got to deal with this. So he goes and confronts David. Now, as Joab is going to go confront him, David covered his face and cried loudly for Absalom. I mean, so he is in public mourning for Absalom. He covered his face, crying out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom. So Joab has enough. So here's what happens. Joab tells David that he has disgraced his servants who saved him and his family. So, I mean, that's pretty bold. I mean, he's going to, I mean, you've got to remember, they're relatives. He's going to him and saying, what you're doing right now is disgracing the very men who put their lives on the line for you to save you and your whole household. He points out that David would have been okay if Absalom had lived and they had died. Joab says, look, this is the situation. If, if we had all been killed in battle trying to protect you, you would have been okay with that if Absalom had survived. And that's really not a good place to be, especially when you have people who are laying their lives on the line for you. So then he states that if David didn't comfort his men, no one would stay with him again. In fact, the text says very clearly, let me read you what the text says. It, it, it was, it's, he says, Joab came into the house. Today you have disgraced all your servants who live, who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons, the daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines in that you love your enemies and hate your friends, for you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died, this it would have been well. Now therefore arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, no one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Basically, Joab is saying, look, if you don't go out there and comfort them, if you don't go out there and congratulate them for the victory that they have given you, they're gone. You're going to be abandoned. They're not going to do anything more for you. And you will be worse off than any situation that you have faced from the moment of your youth up until that point. And let's be honest, folks, when we've gone through First and 2 Samuel, we've seen David go through a lot. And Joab is saying, only this time you'll be alone because nobody will be with you. Nobody will be with you. And, and so here's what happens. We see it in verse 8. David took his place at the gate of the city, and the people were comforted. So when David goes out, rather than being in his bedroom mourning and crying out for Absalom, he's going out and being in the place where the king needs to be, welcoming his men into town. The very presence of the king that gave comfort to the people. The people are like, Yeah, everything's okay. Everything is okay. So that's where we end up in verse eight. Now when we get to verse 9 to 15, we're going to see that there is now a discussion. This is why I'm saying this is awkward. That was awkward, okay? Let's just let me go before we move on. That was awkward what we just saw because here you are, you're a dad, your son is dead, you want to mourn your son, but you can't. I mean that that's awkward. Now we get to the point where, okay, you're the king, but the people that you're king of claim somebody else's king. But that person's dead now, and you're still the king. Now you've got to go back to Jerusalem. So there's this discussion that's taking place about bringing David back. So when you get to verse 9, it tells you very clearly that the northern tribes had a debate among themselves. A debate arose between the people concerning the status of David as king. So they're basically debating among themselves about whether or not David is their king. Should they bring David back? It is pointed out that the king delivered them in the past, but he fled from Absalom. So there's discussion, and they're they're talking about, well, yeah, he's the one who delivered us from the Philistines. He's the one who killed Goliath. He's the victor. He's the one. He's the one who's given us all these victories. But yeah, he he did run from Absalom, though. Absalom, they then talk about whom they anointed as king, is now dead. Now, this is what I think is awkward. In this discussion about bringing David back, the very people who are debating this are acknowledging that they selected Absalom to be their king. Isn't that awkward? And the guy that they selected is now dead. That's not good. That's not good at all. And so we see that here. Now, The issue confronting them now is when they will bring back the king. When they will bring back the king. So that's the issue. When do we bring back the king? How do we do this? This is awkward. This is awkward that's happening here. Now, We then go on, so that's the discussion happening among the northern tribes. We then, as we move further along into the text, we see that David is doing the political thing with regards to his own tribe. Remember, he's from the tribe of Judah. If you remember from what we studied so far, they were the first ones to anoint him as king. So for, for seven years, he was the king of Judah before he became the king of Israel. So... David sent word through the priests to Judah about his return. The text will tell you that he talks to Zadok, who is the high priest, to talk to Judah about his coming back. Now, here's what he's, here's what David is saying. David called them to bring him back and states that Amasa would remain the commander. So you can see there's kind of a compromise going on here. Plus there might be a little bit of David is really irritated with Joab. He's already got a problem with the sons of Zariah going back a long way. So he's talking to them about Judah bringing him back as king, but he also... It's kind of like an olive branch. He kind of says to them, okay, but we'll let Amasa, remember who is a distant relative of Joab, we'll let him remain as the commander of the army of Israel. And so there obviously is some sort of an agreement here because the text tells you that David swayed the hearts of Judah And they called for David and his servants to return. So in his words through Zadok and all of the things that he did, he he kind of swayed the hearts of Judah to bring him back as king. To bring him back as king. Now, I want you to notice something now. This is going to be very much evident here in a little bit as we continue through the text. Remember, the text starts out with... The discussion among the northern tribes about bringing David back. Then a text moves to David's movement with his own tribe to bring him back. But as he does that, he's not including the northern tribes. That's going to be an issue later, okay? That's going to be an issue later, and we're going to see it as we move further along. And it's actually going to be an issue into the kingdom of his son, especially when his son would die later. We'll see that when we get into 1 Kings. Now, the men of Judah escorted David across the Jordan as he journeyed to Jerusalem. So the men of Judah, they, the army of Judah, whatever thousands of men they are, they would then escort David and his mighty men and their families Across the Jordan, and it's very clear that when they go across the Jordan, they're on a ferry as they journey to Jerusalem. Now, the text then goes on when you hit to verse 16 and 43, you're going to see David's interaction with three different guys. Okay, so this is his returning back to Jerusalem. But he has an interaction with three different guys. And we're going to see this in verses sixteen through forty-three. So the first guy that he has an interaction with is the guy by the name of Shemai. Remember Shemai? He was from the household of Saul, the Benjamite, who, when David was fleeing Jerusalem, he was standing off on a distant, throwing rocks at the king and his his entourage and assaulting the king. And remember. Abishai wanted to cut off his head, but David said, no, don't cut off his head because the Lord had him do that. Because when you look at some of the things that Shammai was saying, it's very evident that God had put this man up to saying these things. Okay, so when you come to verse 16, Shammai the Benjamite came down with the men of Judah to meet the king. So it's interesting, the Benjamite, Obviously, here's the king's coming back. The men of Judah are going to go get him. So Shammai goes with them to bring the king back. You're like, why is he doing this? Well, if you just insulted the king when he's running and now the king has prevailed and the king is coming back, what would you be worried about? Well, the text is very clear. Accompanying Shammai was 15,000 men of Benjamin with Zeba and his household. Remember, Ziba was the servant of Saul who was in charge of what was given to Meshibosheth. And Meshibosheth, remember, he didn't go with David. And Ziba said, well, that's because he wanted the kingdom for himself. And so David gave him all that was Meshibosheth's. Well, okay, so Shammai's coming. There's 15,000 men of Benjamin with him. So there's two tribes there now, as well as Ziba and his household. So here's what happens. Of course, when they come to David, Shammai does what he should do. He fell down before the king and begged for mercy with regards to his insults earlier. (laughs) Yeah, I think that would be the appropriate thing to do, right? Because your neck literally is on the chopping block here. And so he falls down, he prostrates himself and begs, for mercy, the text says, and says that what he said was wrong and a reproach. And he repents of it. Now again, we again see one of his commanders, the son of Zariah, Abishai, the brother of Joab, speaks up. Abishai responded that he should be killed for insulting the Lord's anointed. Okay, so let me just, this is a good place to stop and talk about this term, the Lord's anointed. Now, with regards to Samuel, both 1st and 2nd Samuel, this whole issue of the Lord's anointed is regards to the one who is to be king over Israel. That's the context of this statement. So... For instance, when they talked about Saul, and remember those who had killed Saul, and 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 the reality was that David, when he punished those who uh, had quote said that he killed Saul, you what, did did you not fear lifting your hands against the Lord's anointed? Remember David, when he had the opportunity to kill Saul, I will not lift my hands against the Lord's anointed. The reality is, is the Lord's anointed in their mind was the king of Israel, and nobody would lift their hands. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because I think this is a good place to make mention of something. You know, So I've been a believer now since 1985. And so I have been involved in little churches throughout the South and, and into the North and so forth. And, and I can remember when I was a young man being in churches, you, you often heard the term the Lord's anointed with regards to pastors. And there is a sense in which that is true of one who has been called to pastor and they have been had their hands laid on through ordination of that man. However, whenever this term, the Lord's anointed, would come up, it was with regards to a pastor being criticized and people would say, you, you shouldn't lift your hand against the Lord's anointed. They would use that phrase, from a historical narrative to talk about not criticizing the pastor. All right, so let me just go ahead and tell you. This is an Old Testament narrative with regards to how they handled and viewed their king. This has nothing to do with being a pastor. So that whole concept of you lifting your hands against the Lord's anointed because you're criticizing your pastor, that doesn't find support here. Now, there are other things that you can use for, like, don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless you have two or three witnesses. The point there is, is that if you have two or three witnesses, then you can bring an accusation against an elder. But this is not a blanket thing to absolve anyone from criticizing the pastor. That's not in this text. That's making the text say something that it's not talking about. Do you understand? That's a little side note there. But in regards to this situation, David's saying, you have insulted the Lord's anointed, the king. You deserve to die. Excuse me, Abishai has said that. Now, it's interesting how David responds David rebuked Abishai and swore to Shammai that he will not be killed. In fact, here's what he says. He basically said there's been enough death. And I swear to you that you will not be killed today. You'll not be killed. All right, now I want you to notice some things. So let me just read what it says to you, okay? Let me find it here and I will read to you. Um, uh, David said, verse 22 of chapter 19, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? Okay, that's, <laughs> that's his statement of irritation with the sons of the Zariah, that you should be adversaries to me today. Shall any man be put to death in I- today in Israel? Okay, so we've got enough death. For do I not know that today I am the king over Israel? So here's what he said, therefore the king said to Shammai, you shall not die, and the king swore to him. All right, so he's basically saying, we're not going to kill you. Now I want you to notice what the narrative doesn't say. It doesn't say that David forgives him. And I need you, especially as we progress along in our study through these books, I need you to remember that because he's going to say something to Solomon when Solomon becomes king. And it has to do with Shammai, as well as some other people. Joab is one of them. So I just want you to be aware of that. Okay. So he rebukes Abishai, swore that Shammai was not to be killed. So that's the first guy he encounters. Here's the second guy. Meshibashev. Okay, so Meshibashev somehow makes his way there. He gets to come there, okay? So Meshivosheth came to the king, and his appearance had not been cared for since the king left. So when Meshibashev comes, he basically looks like he hadn't cared for himself or taken care of himself since the king left. So he's not in a good way looking. Now, I think this is to be pointed out to you that the narrative is wanting you to understand this. Because I think when Mashibashef is questioned about this, that gives him a little bit of credibility here. And I'll explain to you why here in a minute. Okay? So David questioned why Mashibashef did not come with him when he fled. Natural question, You've been sitting at my table. I honored you because of your father. And you've been sitting at my table every night for a meal. I gave you back the, everything that belonged to your grandfather. Why didn't you come with me? Okay, remember, he asked Ziba that. Why isn't here? All right, good question, right? Meshivosheth claimed that he was deceived by his servant And his father's house is nothing. All right, so here's what he does. Meshavasheph is doing two things here. He's answering the reality of what has happened. He basically says that he was told one thing and his servant did another thing. And then his servant slandered him. What do you mean slandered him? Remember that Ziba said that the said, now the kingdom of my grandfather will come to me. Which, if you think about that, that's ridiculous. Especially when it's his, David's son Absalom coming with all of Israel to take the kingdom. They're not going to give it to Meshavosheth, who's lame in his feet. Okay, so he says he's been deceived. And then he makes the point to tell David, my father's house are nothing but dead men. My father's house are insignificant. They're of no threat. They're nothing. This is the point that Meshavosheth is making. Now, I'm going to say to you that him showing up the way that he did and what he said, I think, created a situation where David now maybe see some credibility in what he's saying, okay? So David appears to believe him somewhat and gives him back half of his estate. Gives him back half of his estate. Why? Because it's not clear, folks. And I'm saying to you that if he didn't believe Meshibosheth, he would have just had Ziba had the whole thing. But because David appears to somewhat believe Meshibosheth, but he's not quite sure, he divides what was Saul's, gives half to Zeba and his household, and the other half to Meshibosheth. And I think it's very interesting how Meshibosheth responds. And how he responds... Is verse 30. Then Meshavosheth said to the king, rather let him take it all inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. That's a good response. And so we see his interaction with the second guy. Now there is a third guy here and his name is Barzilia. Now we see this in the last part of this section of verses, in verses 16 to 43. Now, who is Barzillia? Remember, Barzillia was somebody who aided David by providing supplies for he and his entourage as they were on the run. So, Barzillia was an aged rich man who supplied David while he was on the run. So, here's an old guy who has a lot and he supplied David. Now, He's with David at the Jordan as David is getting ready to cross over to go, back to go back to Jerusalem. So David offered for him to come to Jerusalem and that he would provide for him. Basically, he's saying, Barzillia, because of what you've done, I want you to come be with me. I will take care of you the rest of your life. Because of the honor and and the support that you have given me, I want you to come with me. All right? So he's making this offer. He's basically saying, everything you want will be taken care of because of what you did for me. Now, I think it's interesting, Barzilia declines this. He declined and sent Chimham to go in his place. What Barzilia said is this, I'm old. (laughs) What do I want to do in the palace? with the, with the life of the palace what, what do i i want to i want to die in my own village on my own in my own house and be buried in the tomb of my fathers i just want to stay where i'm at it's okay but rather let me send you chimhem let let him go in my place let me send someone else that you can honor in my place that's what barzillias says now i think it's interesting David promised to do everything for Chimham that he promised to Barzillia. So David said, okay, everything I was going to do for you, I'm going to do for him. And basically, it's like you're here except it's Chimham, and he will get everything that I promised to you. And so we see that there. Now, the last part of chapter 19, verses 16 to 43, the very last few verses, is really where we're going to see a future problem that's going to rise. These are the seeds of a future problem. Because there are things that are said here and that result out of this that have an effect even later on into the reign of Rehoboam, which is David's grandson, the son of Solomon. Okay, So the men of Israel came to David's group because they were upset at being left out. Okay, so remember, there is the men of Judah, the thousands of them, they're escorting them. They are met then by the men of Benjamin, 15,000 of them, and they're all there, those two tribes are there, to escort David back to Jerusalem, which is the capital of all of Israel. Now, as they're journeying then the rest of the men from the other ten tribes show up and they're a little irritated. They're irritated because they have not been informed to take part in bringing the king back to Jerusalem. It's a legitimate concern. So the text goes on and they said, they claimed that they too had a right to David as king, as Judah did. They had a right to him as king. They have 10 shares in David is what their point is. They have a right, 10 shares in the kingship. Israel is not one tribe, they're saying. Israel is 12 tribes, and the other 10 have a share in him as well. And we need to be a part of this. Their protest, however, did not prevail since the words of Judah appeared stronger. So we see this now. We're talking about awkward here, folks. Awkward. So again, let me just, why am I saying awkward? Because we just saw that these people were ready. Well, they did. They supported Absalom. They wanted him as king. He stole the hearts of all of Israel. They were ready. They anointed him to be king. He was their king. Now he's dead. Oh, wait a minute. We got to have David back here. This is awkward. And now they're fighting over who is the one who should be bringing him back, who should or who shouldn't. Really awkward. I can't even begin to imagine how David is feeling here when he's looking at all of these men who some of them probably were in the battle that his men had just won. And they're wanting, yeah, David, come on back. People are fickle, aren't they? This is what we're going to see here. Well, that brings us to chapter 20, where (laughs) it only gets worse. Now, remember, all right, I want you to go back with me to chapter 12 in your mind. Remember the prophetic statement that Nathan made to David concerning the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, that the sword would never depart from his house. Well, you think the situation with Absalom is over now. David's going to go back to Jerusalem. Yeah, there's some friction going on, but we'll work that all out. Yeah, but you come to chapter 20 and you realize real quick that that's not what's happening here. So it starts off in verse 1 telling you about a guy who is identified as a rebel. There was a rebel named Sheba who was there when the men of Israel protested. Okay, so in this situation where they're traveling from the Jordan on their way back to Jerusalem, the men of Israel come, they're upset with their being left out, or having that big argument or whatever, there's a the guy there by the name of Sheba. And it says, the text makes it very clear, that he's a rebel. Well, here's what he did. He blew a horn, or he sounded the trumpet, claiming that the ten tribes had no claim in the house of Israel. Basically, he makes a big deal out of the fact that the ten tribes were left out of bringing David back. And he says, we have no claim in the house of Israel. Follow me. Now, my friends, I'm going to tell you something. That cry will appear later on. And when they do, the kingdom becomes divided. We see that in 1 Kings. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. And so we see the seeds of that here in this incident, okay? So here's what happens. So the men of Israel abandoned David and followed Sheba. They weren't satisfied with the outcome. Here's Sheba saying, follow me. We have no claim in this. We're on our own. Let's go. And the men of Israel, the northern tribes, the ten tribes, says, yep, we're going. Now, I want you to understand, the ten tribes... Because remember, it's Benjamin and Judah that have brought David back. Okay, Benjamin and Judah. Now, Judah and the area around Jerusalem remained loyal to David. Okay, remained loyal to David. So they're... They're basically supporting David, but the other ten tribes, which is basically everything north of Judah, they're, quote, rebelling. Now, when David, we see this again in the first part of chapter 20. It's just, I think, only one or two verses that's devoted to this. When David returned to the palace, he took the ten concubines and secluded them. Remember, these were the ten concubines that when he fled, he left them in charge of taking care of the palace. These are the same 10 concubines that Ahithophel had told Absalom to take and on a rooftop in front of everybody, rape. And that would make him despised in David's eyes. So these women have been in a, are in a tragic situation and it only gets more tragic for them because when David comes back, he secludes them. He basically separates them from the rest of the household. They live basically on their own. And the text says, like widows. And so he provided for their needs, but he never went to them again. He didn't have any kind of relationship with them again, ever. So basically, they died in seclusion. Cared for, this is not good, is it? Now, okay, remember he made Amasa. The deal was you would be the commander. Well, the text goes on and tells us that David told Amasa to assemble the men of Judah in three days. So the king says to the commander, all right, get the men together in three days. We need to go after Sheba because he's going to be a bigger problem for us than Absalom ever was. And that's because, my friends, at this point, we're talking about the kingdom being divided between the ten northern tribes and the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So he tells Amasa, take three days, get the men together. Well, the text tells us, I'm not sure why, but Amasa, this is his first test, Amasa took longer than three days, so David looked to Abishai to pursue Sheba. So it's obvious, let's stop for a moment Who did David, before all of this stuff, who would he look to to take care of all the stuff militarily? Joab. Now, if you notice, he tells Amasa, Amasa doesn't do it, king's impatient. He goes to somebody he knows he can do it, but it isn't Joab, it's Joab's brother, Abishai. And he tells Abishai to pursue Sheba. And then the text goes on and tells you that Joab then, with Abishai, went to go after him. Now, this is where it begins to be tragic again, and you begin to see that Joab is not a great guy. Because remember, Joab had already killed one guy before. And that's when David was in Hebron. And he killed the commander of the army of Israel at that point. Brutally murdered him. Same thing's happening again now. So as they were pursuing Sheba, Joab took Amasai aside and killed him with a sword. Basically, it's kind of a very deceptive thing here. He basically took him aside and grabbed him by the beard like he was going to kiss him on the cheek. That's something very common in their culture. But as he's doing that, Joab's got a sword in his hand and he disembowels Amasha. He thrusts the sword in, disembowels him, kills him, leaves him laying there, goes on. Goes on with his pursuit. But he's killed Amasa. One of his men, the text says, says, Follow me as we go with Joab and David to get rid of his enemies. Of course, the men go. They left Amasa's body in the road and continued to pursue Sheba. I mean, Jesus left his body in the road to bleed out, so to speak. In fact, that's what the text says. The men of Judah paused at Amasa's body until somebody covered it. So as the men were coming along and marching, I think, they would pause when they saw the body of their commander laying dead there, disemboweled. Not a good situation. Finally, somebody covers the body. Joab and the men of Judah pursued Sheba until he was holed up in Abel, which is a town, obviously, in northern Israel. Joab besieged the city and built a siege mount to take the city. So he's got the city surrounded. He then builds up. This is what they would do to get over the wall of the city. They would build up a mound. It would take some time because you're getting fired upon and everything to take this city. He's going to take this city. He's, I mean, this is Joab, and he's got the men of Judah. I mean, they're, sooner or later, this city is going to fall. So here's what happens. A wise woman called out from the city to speak to Joab. The text makes it very clear that she was a wise woman in that city. She calls out from the wall to Joab. She questioned why Joab was ready to destroy the innocent and city for what matter? Why have you come here to to snuff out all these people? Why are you here to destroy us? What? Why would you do this? Joab, of course, protests. So Joab stated he was not there to destroy a city, but he was seeking a rebel named Sheba who had rebelled against the king. So the woman... Joab stated that if they delivered Sheba, he would leave the city unharmed. Basically, he's saying, look, you got a choice here. I don't really want to destroy your place. I don't want to kill all these people. But if you give me the guy who we want, Sheba, we'll leave. Nothing will happen. Nothing will happen. Well, the woman stated that Joab should watch since Sheba's head will be thrown over the wall. So the woman says, just pay attention. We're going to throw his head over the wall. And that's exactly what happened. The woman went to the people of the city and they threw Sheba's head over the wall. So she went to the people of the city and obviously being wise, she explained to them the situation and said, there's all this tragedy and all this stuff that could happen to us. We didn't ask for it. This guy just showed up here. We'll just give him this guy, and if we do this, we're okay. So guess what they did? They took Sheba, killed him, cut off his head, threw his head over the city wall. Folks, this is a brutal time. Brutal time. We can't even comprehend how brutal this is. So, of course, the head's thrown over, so guess what Joab does? Joab then blew the horn, and the army withdrew as he returned to David in Jerusalem. That was the end of that rebellion. That was the end of that rebellion. It doesn't say very much anymore after that. uh, We're going to see that the text will then move on to a famine that happens when we get to chapter 21. So we don't know, but somehow, obviously, David is able to get the ten tribes back to where they need to be. Their rebel leader is now dead. So... What we see then in the last few verses of chapter 20 is this. The writer lists all those who served David in administering the kingdom. Now, okay, just a couple of notes here. It says that Joab is the commander in these verses. But what the text doesn't tell us, it doesn't say anything about what happened because he killed Amasa the way he did, murdered him. That news would have gotten back to David. But I guess what you're seeing up to this point is that the sons of Zariah, his relatives, have some sort of hold over David that he can't deal with them directly. And that's going to keep making itself very evident up until the point of David's death and his instructions to Solomon. Well, that brings us to the end of chapter 20. And what we're going to be looking at next week is the whole issue of of chapter 21, and something with regards to the house of Saul again. We see that there's a famine in the land, and it's determined that they need to make something right with regards to something Saul did. And again, it's another brutal situation, and we'll be talking about that next week.